Tonight we are looking at what is the difference between false prophecy and wrongly interpreted prophecy. Both can be very damaging and both were to the people of Israel. The first are words that are not given by God and the second are words God spoke but people understood or applied them differently than God intended. So we're going to get through the... um, verse 5 of Zechariah, and then we will take a look at some other areas of Scripture. In verse 1, Zechariah chapter 14, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. So last week we looked at this and saw that God allowed the destruction in the beginning, but then he comes to their defense before they fall to defeat. Most times they have fallen in defeat, and then God would come to their defense afterwards. But this is one time that was different. He came to their defense midway through the judgment. Now Israel saw this prophecy understood this prophecy from Zechariah 14 and saw it as predicting help for them when Rome came against the city in 70 AD. They misapplied the prophecy. Misunderstood its meaning. Because they saw the deliverance that God was going to bring and they interpreted that to mean when Rome came against them. They didn't follow Jesus' instructions to flee the city. They stayed in. The deliverance never came. And many of them died. Misapplied prophecy can be just as as destructive as listening to false prophecy. We not only have to make sure that it's right prophecy, we have to make sure that we rightly understood it and rightly applied it. So by the time we get here to the end, we want to take a look at some ways that we can make sure that any prophecy that that we understand, that we understood it correctly. How is it that we can make sure we understand prophecy correctly? Let's pick up here in verse 4. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two, from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azel. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. Now we don't have, I think this might be the only reference to the Mount of Olives in the Old Testament. But Zechariah alludes to the plan of God to have Jesus return. When Jesus came, he spoke of his return coming to the Mount of Olives. When he ascended, the angels also referred to his return as coming to the Mount of Olives. And the book of Revelation refers to his return as coming to the Mount of Olives. And we looked at some things about how that um, might be just a little bit different. He might come first off in Edom and then move up to the Mount of Olives and then come down upon that, that mountain. But that was last week. Let's take a look at what we're getting into here this week. I am, I, I have a note that I strayed upon that the Mount of Olives actually has two peaks to it. And the thinking is that one foot would land on one peak and one foot would land on the other peak and split the mountain apart that way. This mountain is going down. It is going to split apart. But what I thought is interesting is in the Old Testament, this mountain saw a lot of corruption. Solomon in particular was the one who corrupted this mountain. It is actually called the mountain of corruption at one point. In Second Samuel 15.30, you can just write these down. We're not going to read them. If you want to, you can. Second Samuel fifteen thirty, First Kings eleven seven, and Second Kings twenty three thirteen. Second Samuel fifteen thirty, First Kings eleven seven, Second Kings twenty three thirteen. We see the corruption that Solomon brought upon the mountain, the Mount of Olives. When this corruption comes to the Mount of Olives, it is interesting that God doesn't change His plan because God's plan is from the beginning. Same way we know that Jesus was planned from the beginning to die on the cross. His return on the Mount of Olives was planned from the beginning, even though it was not all revealed until here in Zechariah 
and in the book of Revelation. I've often thought about this, though, when we think about places that have been desecrated, places that have been used in a wrong way. Maybe you bought a house and you want to know the history of that house. Well, what if this house has a history and wrong things went on it? Or what if wrong people lived in that house? and did wrong things, should I move into that house, should I be in that house, will my being in that house be a problem? Maybe I should find a house that didn't have these things going on. So people, you know, they spend a lot of time and they investigate the history of the house. Who was the owner before? What did that owner do? What kind of sin did they live in? What kind of righteousness did they operate in? All these kind of things going on so they know what's going on inside the house. If you can get into that kind of bondage, the enemy can can put you into things that something is on that house and he'll have you chasing after demons for the entire time you're in that house. I think back to the temple. In the temple, in the Old Testament, we see that Solomon had allowed uh, wrong things to come into the temple. Other kings that came after him also allowed wrong things. There was actually idolatrous worship that went on. Some of the prophecies that we saw in Ezekiel uh, depicted some of these prophecies that had gone on uh, depicted some of the things that actually were happening in the temple. But God still used his temple. He didn't have a problem using that temple. The Mount of Olives was used for some very wrong things, some idolatrous worship. Some high places were put up there. Some things were done on this mountain. I believe even the sacrifice of children occurred on the Mount of Olives. But God didn't change his plans. He's still bringing his Messiah back on that mountain. He still had Jesus teach from that mountain. He still had his, his uh, disciples gather with Jesus and they, he taught them at that mountain. It doesn't seem that God changes his plan despite the sin that people do in an area. If God didn't change his plan, I don't know that we have to either. So I'm not telling you to go out there and buy whatever sin-infested place that you want to find and go ahead and use it. I'm just saying if you find a place, you feel the hand of God leading you into a place to buy that house, be in that apartment, go after that building, Whatever it might be, if you feel the Spirit of God leading you, don't let whatever it is in the natural that you hear steer you from it. God never was steered from it. He didn't seem to be bothered by those kind of things happening. And you don't have to either. Now what he's doing here is he's going to take the north side of the mountain and move it north and the south side of the mountain and move it south so that there is a path for them to pass through to go from Jerusalem through the Mount of Olives and into the area where they're supposed to be protected. So, what he is basically doing is the same thing he did with the passage through the Red Sea. He's now doing through a mountain. So he did it before through water. And now he's going to do it through a mountain and he's going to protect them from their enemies by bringing them through this mountain. When he, when he brought people through the Red Sea. He brought them through with the idea of preserving them. And the king of Egypt got the idea, no, we're not going to let them go. If they can go through, so can we. I wonder, will the forces of evil pursue them through the mountain? And if they pursue them through the mountain, will the same fate come upon them that came upon those who pursued through the Red Sea? And that's not in Scripture, so we have to wait until we're in heaven and we watch. Because that'll be one of the things I'm watching. When I see the mountain split apart, we'll be in heaven when that happens. But when I'm in heaven, I'm watching down there and the mountain splits apart and the people come on through. I'm watching what happens next. Because I don't know what will happen next. But I'm wondering, will they be as Pharaoh and go through? Now, it's very easy for us to interpret prophecy in a way that benefits our situation instead of looking to understand its true meaning. So often people have heard prophecies and they hear it in a way that benefits them, benefits their decision, benefits what they want to do. That's not how we're supposed to hear prophecy. That's how Israel constantly heard prophecy. When they would hear a prophetic message, how does this benefit us? How can we uh, hear this in that way? And so they would sometimes twist the meaning or misunderstand things and go after it in the wrong way. God doesn't care. If you misunderstood what he said, you are still held accountable for what he said. And he held them accountable for their for misunderstanding prophecy. I gave you the warning. You didn't listen. You went. Uh, remember when um, uh, they fled to Egypt? Well, 
I didn't tell you to go to Egypt. I told you this would happen. I'm not helping you. I told you not to go. I told you what would happen if you did go and you went on your own. So uh, God does not feel any obligation to live up to any mis- misunderstanding uh, we have of prophecy. So we've got to make sure that we get it right. Now, He is going to help us to get it right. But we have to make sure that we get it right. If I understand His prophecy wrong and I refuse the help that He sends along the way to help straighten me out, I'm going to be in trouble. There's some other misunderstood prophecies that happen in the Word of God. They accepted false prophecy in Jeremiah and Ezekiel's days. And of course, there's other days too, but those are particular days when, as we were looking through the book of Ezekiel, we saw that there were a lot of false prophets that were coming out and counteracting the things that Jeremiah and that Ezekiel would say. And they had to make a decision Do we trust the words that Jeremiah has spoken? Do we trust the words that Ezekiel has spoken? Or do we go after the words that the false prophets have spoken? And most of the time they went after the words of the false prophets because that was something that appealed to what they believed should happen to them. They didn't feel that they deserved judgment. And so when the false prophets would prophesy something that was not judgment, Ezekiel, I'm sorry, uh, um, Jeremiah and Ezekiel were prophesying things of judgment. Well, I I think this is more in line because that, jives with me more so than the the other. So misunderstanding true prophecies had them seeing Messiah coming as the Lamb King. You'll remember this from the New Testament. Instead of the Lamb first and then the King. He was to come as a Lamb first, be the sacrifice, and then return as the King. But they were not able to understand this. And of course, it was veiled in Scripture. Scripture, it was it was there, but they couldn't see it. And we can certainly understand why when we go back through and, and look at that. But Jesus, he taught the correct understanding of this in several of his parables, some of which we've already looked at on Sunday mornings. Their failure, though, to understand caused them to miss how he would be the lamb and then die and then depart and then return as king. But Jesus did spell this out for them. He did tell them in the parables, he leaves, he receives a kingdom, and he comes back. He told his disciples The Son of Man must suffer, must die, and be raised on the third day. They couldn't hear it. They couldn't understand these words because of what was in them. Misunderstanding prophetic words given for the last days has seen many people looking for a revived Roman Empire instead of an Islamic one. If we misunderstand the prophetic words that are there and we're looking for a revived Roman Empire, then we will not see the true uh, Antichrist when he appears. Now, of course, we won't be here for that, but the people that are here, they would not see that. We would not see the formation of the Ten-Nation Confederacy because we would be looking for it in another place. And we would not see the hand of the devil upon the nation's bringing these uh, formulations together because we're looking in a different area. So that's where misunderstanding prophecy comes in. Some of the times we've gone through the book of Revelation, we've told you some of the, as we're going through, we've explained some of the misunderstandings of prophetic messages that are in there. Uh, The one famous one, when the demon spirits are let out of the abyss, they were locked up because they had uh, overstepped their bounds and they were locked up for their disobedience. And they were released for a period of five months to inflict uh, harm upon man. And because of their description, the uh, stinging of the tails and the face of a man, uh, Hal Lindsey was one who interpreted that as being, these are helicopters, these are attack helicopters, uh, but I don't know why attack helicopters come out of the pit of hell. That's uh, just a misunderstood prophecy, but he had a lot of people going after many of the things that were in his, his book, pretty well-known book, and a lot of people picked it up. The late, uh, the late great planet Earth, I think, was one that he wrote, but he also did some others on, on prophecy. Not seeking correct understanding of these prophetic words and the prophetic light that they, we are given will cause Israel to go into a covenant with Antichrist and become vulnerable because of that covenant, because of that alliance. They don't understand the prophetic word. They don't receive the light that comes from it. But there's a lot of light that will help them to not go into that covenant. But they will refuse it. And they will misinterpret the things that are prophesied about. 
And that will be an end result of it. When we predetermine the way we want to be brought out of our current situation, we will hear prophecy in that light. Well, I think God ought to just do this. Remember uh, Naaman? He had a predicament and he had a predetermined way in which he saw he should come out of this. And when the prophet spoke something different, he didn't want to receive it. He didn't want to walk in that. Many times Christians do the same thing. This is what I have, but this is the way I see God taking me out of it. And I'm, I'm not going to hear prophecy that goes against that. If you prophesy something to me, if you speak something to me in, in line with that, then I'll hear that as, oh, this is from God. If it's not, then I'll say this is not from God, but I'm not accepting the right light that I need. Let's go over to Re- Revelations 19. Zechariah 14 is speaking about the second coming of Messiah. And so I want to take a look at the uh, greater depiction of it here in Revelation 19. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to our to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and has avenged her on the blood of his servant shed by her. Now we're going to tap into your knowledge of the book of Revelation right here. In chapter 18, Babylon fell. In the previous chapters, we see that not only did Babylon fall, but also spiritual Babylon fell, which was the harlot. Who killed the harlot of Revelation? Does anybody remember? The Antichrist or the beast? That is who did it. Now look at this verse again. We all know in the Bible it says that the beast who is empowered by Satan kills the harlot. Verse 2. For true and righteous are his, God's, judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. Who judged the harlot? God did. Who took the harlot out? Isn't it amazing that even Satan cannot help but fulfill the judgments of God? Again, they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever, and 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you, his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. I am told by people who count that there are three Hallelujah choruses in the book of Revelation. The first is by a multitude in chapter 7. The second, by the 24 elders and the four living creatures. And the third, by all Old and New Testament and tribulation saints, angels, 24 elders, and the four living creatures. We'll be there to get to hear those. But here we have basically a hallelujah chorus. This is what's going on. Verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. So now we have the marriage supper of the Lamb and this will take place while the tribulation is going on. Up in heaven we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now God uses this example all through the Old Testament. He uses this in in Jesus' examples in the New Testament. He uses the example of the marriage and how they would enter in. If we're going to understand the example that he uses, I cannot understand that in an American marriage. I cannot understand it in an Indian marriage. I cannot understand it in a Russian marriage. I cannot understand it in an African marriage. I cannot understand it in a European marriage. The only way I can understand what God is saying is to understand what Israel did in marriage. Because all that matters is what they did. Not what we do. Marriage is very cultural. And different cultures have different ways of going about it. Even the Jewish people today have a different way of doing it than they did then. I don't care what the Jewish people do today as far as understanding this. What I have to understand is what they did then. 
because that is the example being used. The example that Jesus uses for marriage is the ancient Jewish tradition which has three stages of marriage. There are three stages of marriage. Those three stages are spoken about in the Word of God and those three stages are what will occur in the marriage supper of the Lamb. He is not looking to mimic any other example other than this one. Now, either he helped to shape the way <clears throat> that their marriages was, were done to fit the mold that he wanted to do, or he saw what they were doing. I like this. We can relate this to the, in this area and just jumped on it that way. I don't know which one it was, but whichever one it, it was, this is, the, this is the example that we use. So the first thing, first stage of a marriage is the contract. This is set up by the parents involved, payment of a dowry. Kids are usually young. I'm also told that the, um, the, the husbands in the Jewish realm were, were older than the wives that they took. But the marriages were set up uh, well before they had actually uh, gone, could be at a, uh, at a place where they would enter into it. In Matthew 1.19, Joseph, her husband, being a just man, called him her husband. And not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. They were only engaged. They were under the contract of marriage. But here the Word of God called her her husband. But that was the contract of marriage. Now we would call that the engagement, but it's not the same thing to us. As far as the Jewish people were concerned, if you had a contract, you were married. You just didn't live in marriage yet. You weren't ready for that, whatever it might be. But that's what was, was going on. Now when you enter into that contract, the, the women in the household, now again, this is their tradition, not ours, not the way that God viewed it. This is just the way that they viewed it. They didn't see, they didn't see women as valuable. In fact, women were a liability. So if you wanted to uh, have someone marry your daughter and take that responsibility off of your hands, then you had a dowry. And in that dowry, now this covered the cost Basically, I said, thank you for taking her off my hands and being the one who supports her from here on out. <laughs> so that's basically what it was. Again, that's not God's view. That's just how they, how they did things that way. So there was a dowry. So what would happen is when you entered into a contract, uh, parents of this, of this son, parents of this daughter, we, we like your son for our daughter. We like your daughter for our son. Let's enter into a contract. Maybe it didn't even involve, we like your son for our daughter. Maybe it was just uh, we want to get our families uh, joined together for whatever benefit that it might be. Whatever reason they had for doing it, they would enter into this contract and a dowry was given or a, uh, a certainty was given. And so the uh, parents of the son would take the dowry and they would hold that. Now, I don't know if they had to keep that in reserve, if they could use it. I don't know all the ins and outs about that, but... I guess if anything happened that the marriage was broken, the dowry had to go back to the to the people there. In Second Corinthians eleven two, for I am a, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So there's the uh, contract or the engagement period. This is the first first thing. And Jesus Christ, when he came, he paid the price at Calvary. That's the contract. That's the dowry that is being paid. So we have that first part of that marriage contract set up then. Where the dowry is, is paid. The second part is the ceremony. That's when the bridegroom, accompanied by his friends, came to get his wife. That's the ceremony. In Matthew 25, 1-13, we have the parable of the ten virgins where they're waiting for the bridegroom to come with his friends and to take them into the, into the ceremony. So this is what they would do. They would come on by. Generally, the groom would come by the house of the bride. They would pick her up from there and take her over to the ceremony, and the ceremony would last uh, a, a good while. At the, the ceremony, we then have the feast. And the feast... This is where the guests were invited to the marriage supper. When the bride returns with the when when the bridegroom returns with his bride, 
So, this is where people would be in heaven and they're waiting for the groom to come back with his bride. And so Jesus Christ is going to come and this is the part of the ceremony when he comes and he uh, raptures his church. He's coming for his bride and he brings them back up into the feast which is the third part of the ceremony. John chapter 2 tells us about the wedding at Cana and this is one of those feasts that would go on. And there were, of course, other places you can see this in secular writing. But that is the third part. The third part of this would be the feast and this would go on for days. At the end of those days, the bride would just never go home again. She would just go home with her husband and that would be the, the end of the marriage ceremony. So the three parts of it. And the feast is the final stage. What we're looking at here in the book of Revelation is the final stage of the marriage ceremony, the marriage union. We had the contract. We had the ceremony. Jesus came to get his bride. And then we have the feast. That is the final stage of that. Now it's important to know the example here because this is the example that he wants Israel to understand what he's doing so we have to understand it the way Israel did. So all these aspects are the same in the groom and his return. Verse 8 And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me right blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now angels do not receive worship. If you find an angel who does receive worship, if you hear of an angel who requires worship or asks for worship, he is not from God. All the angels that come from God They do not receive worship. They point worship back to God. They do not receive it themselves. There are other angels out there. One third of the angels fell. So there are other angels out there and they may show up like the righteous angels will. But just know, if any group, if any spiritual uh, thing that's going on is directing worship at angels, it is not of God. Don't buy into it. Verse 11, Now, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat in him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. Understand this from here. There are a lot of things about God that we still do not know. Some of them will wait until we get to heaven. This apparently is one of them. There is a name that is that God has that we do not know. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he was on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So after the marriage supper of the Lamb is over and that marriage is is done, we're all dressed in uh, clothes for a feast. We're all in wedding garments. And we're going to leave right from there in those white linen garments and we're going to get on white horses at least some of us are going to get on white horses and we're going to follow him into the battle of the nations it seems like we ought to be dressed differently but apparently that's all we need white linen we're not going to be dressed in armor instead we're going to be dressed with righteousness now it says here let me see which the um, went right on past the verse 12 look at this one again His eyes were like a flame of fire. Now we've heard that description in other places as well. And on his head were many crowns. On his head were many crowns. Now an interesting part about this is that John, when he writes the book of Revelation, he does a lot of counting. 
there are four living creatures. There are 24 elders. There are 1,260 days in which the two witnesses will be upon the earth. There are 144,000 converts from the Jewish nation. Now, he's looking at the head and he sees the crown and he says, many. That just strikes me as odd. How come he counts the four, he counts the 24, he counts the 1,260 days. Now, he may have been given that number. Maybe even 144,000, maybe he was given that number instead of sitting there counting them all. But he does a lot of counting of things. He counts the seals. He counts the trumpets. He counts the bowls. But here he just says, many. That would seem to indicate that there is a lot of crowns on his head. So we'll have to wait till we see what happens when he gets up there. Why he only says many. I mean, why did he say there's 150 of them on there? He didn't. He said there's many. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive in the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now we've noticed this, noted this in the Old Testament a few times, that God likes to judge sinners with dogs and birds. When you are really lost in your sin, and you have really given yourself over to this to sin, not just do sin, but you have given yourself over to it. He likes dogs to lick your blood and birds to eat your flesh. And he's done that a number of times. Now, the, the sword is literally a long sword. It's not a short one. It's not a medium size. It is a long sword. And perhaps it figuratively speaks of the spoken word. It is literally a long sword and perhaps figuratively the spoken word. It comes out of his mouth and we know the power of the words that come out of Jesus' mouth. And it could just be he slays them with the power of his word. And that would not surprise me one bit. But he does the slaying and they all they all die that are raised up against him. Now, when last week we talked about it is very possible that all the nations gather to the to the uh, plain of uh, Armageddon to gather against the two witnesses because they want to take them out because of the destruction that they have done across the world. And when they die, they may decide to still continue on and take Jerusalem because they're already gathered. But as they may be planning on this, Messiah shows up and they will get it in their their notion, we can take this guy. Or maybe they feel like they have to take this guy. I don't know. But eventually they do switch over. They're not coming out to Jerusalem for anything else but to take Messiah out. So there does seem to be a transition that comes over. But there's no way that all the nations of the earth can gather at Armageddon to fight against him by, the, by itself. Because by the time Jesus shows up, there's no time to get all the nations to the plain of, of uh, Armageddon. They're already there when he shows up. There's another reason why they came, but they switched it over and now they're coming after Messiah. I think it's because the witnesses are dead. They switched their purpose. They were coming to Jerusalem anyway and then Messiah shows up and they decide that's to go after him. But we'll have to wait and see how that actually comes out because we're not told in detail. 
So here's our question that we started with. How can we know if a word is false, misinterpreted, or a true word from God? How can we know it? There ought to be a way. If there's no way, if it's just kind of like, well, you just kind of hit or miss. I mean, maybe you get it right or maybe you don't. Uh, that's not a real good way for us to be able to walk. I think God has better things for us to do that. So I pondered on this for a good long time. I came up with four. I would have liked to have had a fifth because I could have done something with this, but I, I only came up with four. I can't seem to be able to fit a fifth one into it. It seems like these four things, if you can get these four things down, they will help you determine if a word is false, if a word is misinterpreted, or if a word is truly from God. The first thing, the first part of this is revelation. Revelation. Is the word a revelation or a realization from things known or desired? Is it a revelation that God gives? Did God give the revelation to man? Or is man just realizing something because of what they have desired or something that they want? Jesus spoke to Peter when Peter made that declaration, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He said, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. You didn't come to just a realization of this. You got a revelation of this. People often, they want more of a realization of things known or things desired. Sometimes people give words of prophecy based on things that they know. I know this about you. I believe that this is, would be the way that God would, would lead you. So I'm going to give it to you in a prophetic word. And they speak a prophetic word, but it's a realization. It is not a revelation. I remember Brother Hagin would say, uh, uh, teach a number of times, that God had given a word to him for someone, but he felt disqualified. I know too much about them to give that. Give that word to someone else. And sure enough, someone else came up and they got the word. He was able to judge it. I, I got that word too, but I knew too much. I did, he would tell them that. And so uh, you you prophesied that. I can confirm it though that God did speak that. And so he would uh, just go into a role of confirming. But revelation is different from realization. I can just realize some things. I can look at the word of God and come to a realization of some, some things. But it's not necessarily a revelation. Prophecy is a revelation. God speaks a revelation. I have nothing to base this on. God spoke this to me. God gave this to me. The words that came to Jeremiah, the words that came to Daniel, the words that came to Ezekiel, the words that came to uh, Isaiah, these words the prophets spoke, they were revelation. They were not a realization of things that were happening around them. There was not just an interpretation of the things that were happening around them in regards to the word. This was a revelation that God spoke. This is what's coming. This will happen. This will go on. And that's what he spoke to them. So the first thing is, the first part is, it is a revelation. The second one is isolation. Is the prophecy isolated from other words spoken or words written? Very often, People who give a false prophecy or misinterpret a prophecy will deliberately isolate it from the things that will show it to be false or misinterpreted. They will get mad if you disrupt that isolation. Well, what about this scripture? What about this prophecy? What about this teaching? How does that work with that? It seems like that exposes that as being false. They will get upset at that because they have to isolate the word that they have from other things in Scripture. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had things that they would speak as either teachings or as sometimes as prophetic things that they would give to the people, but they had to isolate them from other parts of Scripture. Jesus would come in and he would expose those things and he would bring to light what the other scriptures said, exposing what they were saying, exposing what they were doing as false. But a false prophet or a prophecy that is misinterpreted needs to be isolated from the things that would expose it. 
And so they will, the people that give it will protect it from it. They will keep that from it. They will put you down if you try and say, well, what about this over here? This over here would seem to make that a wrong interpretation. You're spoiling their isolation. They don't want you to spoil their isolation. Most of the time, people are given a false or misinterpreted prophecy. They understand something on it is false or misinterpreted. We have to be careful. If we're speaking something, but I know the Word of God says this and I don't quite understand how that fits in, then I need to be careful what it is that I'm speaking. Because until I have full light on that, uh, I could be in trouble. Revelation, isolation. Here's the third one. Persuasion. Does the Word encourage or enlighten our way toward obedience, correction, or His promises? Does the Word encourage or enlighten our way toward obedience, correction, or His promises? Or does it embolden us to disobey or bold us to disobedience or self-righteousness by appeasing our flesh? Does it embolden us to disobedience or self-righteousness by appeasing our flesh? If this word that comes is not encouraging me, it's not enlightening, enlightening my way to obey God, to be more obedient to Him, to receive His correction, or to pursue His promises... I need to take a look at that. What is it persuading me to do? Is it persuading me to live a life of self-righteousness? You're okay the way you are. Is it encouraging me, emboldening me to be disobedient to my God? What is the persuasion of the prophetic message? What is its end result? Here's the fourth one. Revelation first, isolation second, persuasion third, Separation. Is the prophecy separated from what the world thinks or is, is in agreement with? Because God is always separate from the world. Is the word of this prophecy, is the understanding of this prophecy, is where this prophecy leading me, is it a prophecy that is separate from what the world thinks or is in an agreement with it. How often do we see prophetic messages in the Old Testament go directly against what was going on on that day? Micaiah is the easiest one to get into. All the people, yes, go to war. Yes, go to war. Be victorious. You will win. And Micaiah gets up and he is separate from that. It's not going along with, with those things. Many others are the same way. They are separate from the world. They are separate from the thinking of the world. They are separate from the religious thinking. Jesus comes in and what he is teaching is separate from the Pharisees. What he is teaching is separate from the Romans. It is separate from the ungodly world. When Paul comes upon, what he is teaching is separate from the ungodly world. It is separate from those that are stuck in seeking God through the uh, Jewish law and the sacrifices. It is separate from that. A word from God is going to be separate from the world. So if the interpretation is going along with what the world thinks, i got to take another look at that. So, with that in mind, are the prophecies, you may not like this question, but are the prophecies of the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ are they as we understand them to be? Is it possible that we could have misinterpreted the prophecies of the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ? If we have taken in a wrong understanding on those, then perhaps what we are expecting isn't coming. That's why it's taking so long. So I, I wanted to examine just what we did here in Revelation and what we also know from the Word of God, let's examine this according to these four things. So here's the first one. Re revelation. Is the word a revelation or a realization from things known or desired? Well, the prophecy of the rapture of the church is not something that anyone expected. It's not something that anyone had known 
or desired because they had no idea about the church. So it was a revelation. And it was a revelation that was given to Paul. It was not in line with anything that was known at the time. Though we, once we knew it, we could go back in the Old Testament. Oh, that's why this was done. That's why there, there, was, a, there was a separation there. That's why these prophets said these things. And now we can understand those things because of the revelation that came. So press is the first mustard. Here's the second one. Isolation. Is the prophecy isolated from other words spoken or words written? It's not isolated as once the revelation was given to Paul, we can see it in Jesus' teachings. We can see that Jesus gave room for the rapture of the church. And he gave room that the second coming would come after a period of time. That period of time being the church age. So that fits right in with Jesus' parables, which he gave on several occasions about him going on a journey. How many times has Jesus' parable had the main guy going on a journey to receive something and to come back? He's going on a journey. And that's what the revelation that Paul received about the church and the rapture of the church and the second advent of Jesus, all that meant. Now we understand Jesus' teaching in light of that's the second that's the second advent, that's the second coming. Paul's teaching is the rapture. We can see both of these things. We don't have to isolate it from Scripture. It makes more sense to us when we actually incorporate it with the rest of Scripture. So it is not isolated. Passes the second mustard. Here's the third, persuasion. Does the word encourage or enlighten our way toward obedience, correction, or his promises? Or does it embolden us to disobedience or self-righteousness by appeasing our flesh? The understanding of the rapture of the church and the understanding of the second advent of Jesus persuades us to live in obedience and preparation for the Master's return. I'm not persuaded to live by the flesh. I'm persuaded that I don't know when He's coming. I want to be ready when He gets here. And some of Jesus' parables were teaching us to always be in a state of readiness. So does it persuade us to live according to the flesh? Does it persuade us to live self-righteous. It does not. It persuades us that we need the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that we can get in on that wedding feast. It doesn't embolden us to be disobedient. It causes us to have a greater desire to be obedient so that we can come in on those things that is there. Here's the fourth one. Separation. Is the prophecy separated from what the world thinks or is in agreement with it? Is the prophecy separated from what the world thinks? Well, the world scoffs at this expectation of Christians and mocks them for it. So I would say it's very separated. The world despises this teaching. They laugh at us because we are believing that Jesus Christ is returning again. And they tell us, no, it's been all this time. He's not coming. So it is very much separated from the world. So if we just took this one prophecy and held it up to these four things, we could understand that our understanding is not a misunderstanding and the prophecy itself is not a false prophecy. But these are things that we need to take hold of because there are a lot of things that people are doing in light of this. But they have to do all these things. They have to isolate. They have to persuade in the wrong way. They have to have separation or there is no separation from the world in what they do. I've seen some people, you know, you, you look at uh, Ezekiel. I believe it's um, Ezekiel 37. Remember when God told him to prophesy to the bones? He, he said to prophesy to these bones so that they would become alive. And so he did. Well, people will go out from there and they'll say, well, I'm going to prophesy to these bones. I'm going to prophesy to this car. I'm going to prophesy to this house. I'm going to prophesy. And they begin to come up with things that they should prophesy towards because in the Bible, Ezekiel prophesied towards the bones and because of the words he spoke, life came upon those bones. Yeah, but the reason he did it was because God told him to. And we don't have any place in Scripture where it says, go out and prophesy over bones. Go out and prophesy over cars. Go out and prophesy over houses. If I follow that, then I am speaking my own words to towards those inanimate objects. I am not called to do that. I, I am not prophesying the words of God if I speak my own words that I want, even if I feel like those words are inspired by the Bible. That's not prophecy. That's not following after that example. But people fall into this, and they go out and they prophesy over all kinds of things, thinking that this is God. No, that is not. Ezekiel was told 
prophesy over these bones. Moses was never told that. He was told to speak to a rock. He was not told to prophesy over the rock. Paul was never told to prophesy over the city before you get into it. Jesus didn't go before a city and prophesy over it before he walked in there and began to teach them and do miracles. The disciples didn't follow any example that Jesus had. They didn't go into cities and prophesy over these things. But people will do this. They have gone after their own thing because what they did was not a revelation. It was a realization of what was known and what they desired to do. They will isolate it from other areas of Scripture. They will persuade or they will become persuaded to do things that are in direct disobedience to the Word of God by prophesying as if God had spoken when God had not. And they are moved into a place of self-righteousness because they think they are in a place to do this sort of thing. They appease their own flesh. They're not separated from the world. In fact, they're right along with it because they're speaking their own words as the words of God. How many people have we heard in government? How many people have we heard in news media who go out there and they speak words and say, this is what God thinks? Well, God wouldn't do that. Well, how can a loving God do that? No, that is not how it should go. These four things, I couldn't come up with a fifth. I was trying, I, I spent a lot of time trying to come up with a fifth. I can only come up with these four things. But if you can take any, any understanding of prophecy, any word of prophecy, and hold it up to these things, you will find out whether it is a false word, whether it is a misinterpreted word, or whether it is a true word of God. Father, we thank you that in your word we find such help that we are not left by ourselves to try and figure out all these things. We can know if a word that is represented as a word from you is false. We can understand if an interpretation is false so that we don't follow after wrong teaching, wrong prophetic words, and wrong direction. But we will stay to the true words of God and we will know how to recognize them how to pursue them. I thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.